for they were called the people of God. And the Lord did pour out his spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. But if we permit ourselves to skip over the chapter headings that so often stop the narrative in places that it shouldn't be stopped, chapter 26, verse 1, there were many of the rising generation that doesn't seem to fit in what we just saw at the end of chapter 25. They didn't want to be part of this community of saints. They wanted to remain in Zarahemla, will be part of society, but not part of this gathered community of saints. Now, in part, this was not entirely their fault. Notice the could nots, did nots, would nots in the next few verses. There were many of the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin. Now, that wasn't their fault. They couldn't understand it. Why? Because they were little children at the time he spake unto his people. Even in King Benjamin's address, he points out to the fact that you all know this stuff, except your little children that are too young to understand. Was that some foreshadowing? Was that a gentle nudge to parents saying, you better make sure the water gets to the end of the row? Well, evidently, it didn't always get that far. These little kids hadn't understood King Benjamin's words, and worse yet, they still didn't understand them even when they got old enough for comprehension. It reminds me of a verse at the beginning of the book of Judges where the pride cycle really starts to run rampant, where it says that all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. The generation that crossed the wilderness, that got to the promised land, that conquered under Joshua, that had seen the miraculous hand of God over and over. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Remember the danger for Israel when a new Pharaoh came along that didn't know Joseph? Well, perhaps it's even worse when it's a descendant of Joseph that grows up without knowing Joseph or knowing God's hand in Joseph's life. Especially those of us with multiple children. Yeah, I know I've taught my family that. We've had a family home evening on this story or this principle. Were all your kids alive and there to hear it? In their various capacities or levels of understanding, did they get it? My wife and I have struggled with this on occasion. Where we think, I swear we've taught our kids such and such. Oh, but was Monet around? Was Christian born yet? How old was Madeline? Even with Jacob and Eden, do they need a refresher course? How much milk here and how much meat here and how much repetition and clarification do we need? They've got to get it. And it's on us as parents to see that they do. Maybe it's good to ask ourselves, am I teaching every child as if she or he were an only child? Do they understand? By the way, it might even be, yes, I'm old enough to get it, but I wasn't old enough to experience it when it happened. You keep talking to me about it. We, we set up the tent in the backyard and point it towards the temple and try to recreate our, our experience with King Benjamin and family home evening or something. But I wasn't old enough to have had the experience. I get it. You keep talking about it. Knowing the kind of life-changing experience it was for those parents, I imagine that they did. Remember in chapter 6, their names are recorded. The priests are there to stir them up in remembrance of things. these things. I'm sure they were stirring up the rising generation too. However, the explanation and the experience itself are two very different things. And I wonder about rising generations that are getting their parents' explanations, but missing their parents' experiences for themselves. I read a book about evangelicals in modern America a while back, and I was struck by one of the phenomena that was described in that book that sounded so similar to what I've seen within our church. It talked about the first generation of born-agains, the person himself or herself that had the life-changing experience that made them feel born again. Well, anyone who has felt that spiritual rebirth wants to perpetuate that kind of experience. They want the feeling to continue as long as possible. But how do you capture lightning in a bottle? Max Weber, a famous sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century, talked about the routinization of charisma. Charisma, this, this power, this grace that comes upon a person. And then how do we continue it onward? He even used Joseph Smith as an example of charisma and then Brigham Young as an example of the routinization of it. How do we take what Joseph had and make it into a routine? How do we take 
that experiential outpouring and turn it into something that we can replicate, something that we can continue on in hopes that the feeling returns as we do so. That's really hard to do. And in this book about evangelicals, it talked about that born again then goes from experience into behavior. How should I live in order to perpetuate the experience that I had? I was born again. How do I stay born again? And so here's my lifestyle. Here's the standards that I keep. Here's the practices that I engage in. But then another generation comes on board. And these children grow up in a home where the order of events is different. It's reversed from what their parents had. For mom and dad, it was conversion experience leads to conversion lifestyle. And for them, it's conversion lifestyle with or without a conversion experience. And sometimes those children grow up doing all of these things, but looking almost jealously at their parents, wishing that they had had a born again experience for themselves that would make them want to live this way instead of just having to. Sound familiar, Latter-day Saints? Remember Elder Wilfred Anderson's conference, beautiful conference talk several years ago about the difference between learning the dance steps and hearing the music. The born again heard the music and wants to take that, that rhythm and put it into some kind of an order to be able to keep the sound alive. But the next generation grows up with dance steps. And it's really hard to stay on beat when you can't even hear the music at all. This rising generation just couldn't hear it. And it got to a point where they didn't want to dance at all. By the end of verse 1, they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. That's all it was to them. Not the truths of their parents, the traditions of them. That's just what we do. Church has become a social structure rather than a place where rebirths are taking place. In verse 2, they did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. Those are two things that people are quick to doubt, then and now. Partly because they're non-provable and non-rational and non-immediate. I can't see it. I can't imagine it. I can't prove it. It's not going to happen in my lifetime to prove or disprove. Resurrection second coming, or in their case, the first, really hard to wrap my brain around unless I have the Holy Ghost confirming truth miraculously. And they hadn't had that experience yet. Verse 3, notice the consequences of their disbelief. And now because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God and their hearts were hardened. Now, we started this chapter with a could not understand phrase, but the could not understand of verse 1 is very different from the could not understand of verse 3. The first one, there seems to be no blame, no guilt, no culpability there. I was too little. I just couldn't understand it. But verse 3, this could not understand is a result of their unbelief, not its cause. In verse 1, the order goes from lack of understanding to lack of belief. But in verse 3, the order is reversed. It goes from lack of belief, causing lack of understanding, which is fascinating to me. St. Anselm was an 11th century Christian theologian. And one of the things he's most famous for is this phrase. In Latin, it was fides quarens intellectum, which means faith seeking understanding. Did you catch the order? It was faith that came first for St. Anselm. Faith then seeks understanding. I feel it. I don't completely get it, but I'd like to. This is not seeing is believing. This is believing is seeing. Not in some kind of blind obedience. Again, sight is what we're after. But I know these things are true. I've had that confirmed to me. I just don't understand how it all works. But my belief in these things is what's driving my desire to make sense of them. My faith is seeking understanding. Some people use Adam and Eve and their obedience to the law of sacrifice as described in the book of Moses as an example of blind obedience. Remember the angel comes and asks, why are you offering sacrifice? And they say, "Mm -hmm." 
I know not, save the Lord commanded me. And some will say, oh, see, textbook, blind obedience. They don't get it, but they're just following. And yet, if there's ever someone that should not be accused of blind obedience, there was no veil after the fall for Adam and Eve to forget what it's like to transgress the commandments of God. I don't know the specific reason behind this one, but I know God, and I know the importance of his commandments. I am not blind to those realities, even if I am blind to the specifics of this one case. I have faith, and the angel is like, great, are you ready for understanding? You've got fides. You signed up for intellectum. This generation has the reverse problem. Because I have no fides, because I have no faith, I don't have belief in these things. As a result, I cannot understand them. There needs to be a certain level of belief, or even at very minimum, a suspension of disbelief. So that we even are willing to entertain the possibility of something long enough to give it the attention it deserves, rationally or logically. I remember on my mission, sometimes we'd explain things and ask people if they believed it. And they're like, no, there's no, there's no way. I was like, well, would you be willing to pray about it? They're like, why? I don't believe any of it. And often we would just say, imaginate. In other words, imagine. Imaginemos. Let's imagine por un momento. Let's just, let's just pretend for a second. What if it were true? Would you at least admit that it's possible with a divine God? Is, is, it, is it a possibility? Is it within the realm of possibility? And if they could just suspend their disbelief, resist the knee-jerk, overly enlightened epistemology that requires evidence from the very beginning, just imagine, could it be possible? And if they finally relented and said, oh, I guess anything's possible, okay, then if it were, would it be important to find out? I'm not saying that it is. You don't have to believe all this. But if it were possible, if it's true, by some miracle, would you want to know? And once they were willing to suspend disbelief, just enough to allow the possibility of belief to enter in. If you can no more than desire to believe, Alma will say later, then let it work in you. Let it give some space, kind of clear the table so that you're actually willing to perform the experiment. These people did not believe what was said. And because of that, no room on the table, no space in the lab to perform an experiment. And as a result, they could never understand what the experiment would have given them if they'd had the faith to perform it in the first place. That's a hardened heart. No wonder Moroni will say later in the book of Ether, to rend the veil of unbelief. It's a great phrase. To rend it, rip it, the veil, what keeps us from seeing clearly, of unbelief. If I can rend that veil and believe, then I can truly see what's on the other side of it. As a result of that, could not in verse 3. In verse 4, you have a would not. You see, with each change, we get a little bit more blameworthy. Not their fault they couldn't understand being too little. A little more fault that they didn't believe certain things. Now, a bit more fault that they couldn't understand those things based on their unbelief. This is more of a willful ignorance. And then verse 4, the ultimate culpability and they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church. Could not, did not, would not. I refuse to take those steps, vertically in baptism or horizontally in joining the church. As a result, verse 4, they were a separate people as to their faith, whatever kind they happen to have, and remain so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not, there's another would not, call upon the Lord their God. Why should I? He doesn't answer prayers. Isn't that what Laman Lemuel said when Nephi first came down from the mountain? Have ye inquired of the Lord? Well, why should we? He doesn't make these kinds of things known unto us. Oh, that wasn't Nephi's experience, having just enjoyed four long chapters worth of revelation and vision. Believe in a generous God, and that's what you'll have. Believe in revelation, and it can start flowing. Now in verse 5, this is a small group. 
but they grow. And that's typically the way things work. Because of dissensions among the brethren, this group became more numerous. It's interesting that theirs was not a, a natural growth, but a negative growth. It came at the expense of the people of faith. This part really does seem to be a zero-sum game. The growth of unbelievers at the expense of believers brought about by dissension. In today's growth of unbelief, it's a little bit different. Unbelief for many people has become kind of the natural default with churches trying to change that by preaching the gospel. Unbelievers marrying other unbelievers and raising unbelieving children. That's natural growth. But negative growth is the default is faith and we're seeking dissension from it. So much of today's rise of the nuns, as it's called, nun as in no affiliation with religion. This isn't the Catholic sisterhood we're talking about. Much of that rise is coming simultaneously and at the expense of a decline within churches. It's dissension that we're dealing with now, both the negative as well as the natural growth. And what is it that brings about that dissension? Verse 6, they did deceive many with their flattering words who were in the church, which then caused them to commit many sins. Deception of those who were in the church. Take a look at Joseph Smith Matthew which is the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24, the great kind of signs of the times central in the New Testament. And when Joseph, by revelation, corrects Matthew 24, one of the great changes is the word deception comes up more frequently. That is one of the defining signs of the times. False Christs, false prophets, false teachers, deceiving. And then this phrase that keeps coming up in the inspired version, Deceiving the very elect according to the covenant. Those are the people in the crosshairs. Those are the ones that have the target on their back. The elect according to the covenant. Those who were in the church being deceived by many with flattering words. Let me say what you'd want to hear. At least what the natural man would want to hear. We just emerged from that with the days of Noah. Remember Abinadi? stop squashing down the jack-in-the-box to eliminate that gap filled with guilt between your beliefs and your behaviors? Oh, with flattering words, there's no law, so there's no sin, so there's no guilt. Eat, drink, and be merry. No wonder they were led to commit many sins. They wouldn't have considered them sinful. But that's deceptive. Unfortunately, it's also successful because it's so easy to hear. That's what flattering words are, after all. But there came a point, end of verse 6, that the church was going to have to deal with this. What do we do? It's not just that there are unbelievers out there. There are unbelievers in here. And they are trying to bring people out with them and causing sin to occur along the way. In verse 7, they're brought before the priests, delivered up to the priests by the teachers, and then the priests bring them before Alma, who's the high priest. Interesting order there. It seems to start with the teachers who bring them to the priests, who then bring them to the high priest, Alma. Now, when you see teachers in verse 7, don't picture a bunch of 14-year-olds preparing the sacrament before church on Sunday. Our age divisions in the Aaronic priesthood were a much later development. But I do think it's interesting that teachers were the first to notice that something is amiss whether it's teachers in a classroom starting to see, oh, intellectually, doctrinally, there's some division, some discord here. We've, we've stepped away from the one church model that we saw back in verse 25, just teaching repentance and faith on the Lord. Or maybe it's teachers as in home teachers, visiting teachers, people that are out with people trying to help them live the gospel, and they start noticing some habits are changing, some behaviors and beliefs are in flux. I think the Lord has that in mind in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants when it describes a teacher's duty, which is to watch over the church always and to be with and strengthen them and see that there is no iniquity in the church. These Nephite teachers are doing their job, seeing this iniquity and bringing it forth to priests that have a higher responsibility in removing sin isn't that what blessing the sacrament does? Isn't that what baptism does? Or going to the bishop, for example, the head of the Aaronic priesthood, the chief priest in the ward for confession? Well, all of this is happening here. Teachers 
bringing people to priests, and since it seems to be above their pay grade as well, as a lay clergy, that's easy. They take them to the high priest, who is Alma. And verse 8, Mosiah had given Alma the authority over the church. So this was, does seem to be his stewardship, his responsibility. Now, Alma's not totally sure about that, though. He's sure about their sins. Verse 9, there have been plenty of witnesses testifying of their iniquity and abundance. But in verse 10, what he's not sure about is, what do I do here? He's troubled in his spirit because nothing like this has ever happened in the church before. In the past, it seemed pretty cut and dried how to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. You just kind of leave each other, right? Nephi, Laman, you just split. Mosiah the first and those that remain in the land of Nephi, you just split. Alma, King Noah, you just split. Here, we're all living together. This is happening within the church, dissension from within. What do we do? King Mosiah, you're in charge of everything. What's your advice? However, verse 11, the king wisely knows his responsibility as distinguished from Alma's. You see, at the end of verse 11, Alma says to him, these have been taken in diverse iniquities. They won't repent of their iniquities. So I'm bringing them to you so you can judge them according to their crimes. Now, Alma said something, a clarifying statement that was even beyond, I think, his own understanding. But Mosiah gets it. Notice he said, they don't repent of their iniquities and I'm bringing them to you to be judged of their crimes. Is there a difference between iniquities and crimes? Well, there is. And Mosiah grabs a hold of that difference and, and kind of puts it back in Alma's face to help him understand it. No, no, no. What you are describing are iniquities. Yes. That's a spiritual lapse. They technically aren't crimes, which would be a civil concern. We're already seeing a separation of church and state here, which is healthy. And King Mosiah will have responsibility over crimes, whereas Alma will have responsibility over sins. Section 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants is a great place to study the difference between church and state, by the way. And there's a certain sense of distinguishing between sin and crime there as well. So verse 12, Mosiah says, thanks for bringing him, Alma. It's right back with you. They're kind of playing hot potato with this, but for good reason. So in verse 13, the spirit of Alma is again troubled. Sounds a little like Jacob, right? Because of faith and great anxiety. Alma was feeling both. But Alma goes and inquires of the Lord what he should do concerning this matter. He feared that he should do wrong in the sight of God because he knew what that felt like. He had done that plenty of times during his ministry back in the court of Noah. It's also interesting. I talked earlier about a vertical versus horizontal dimension of our discipleship. We just saw it here too. First, for, in terms of advice for counsel, he looks horizontally. Who should I ask? Oh, King Mosiah. There's my go-to guy. And the king says, sorry, no horizontal help here. So now what's Alma's option? Vertical. Heavenly Father, I need your help now. I remember when new missionaries came to Puerto Rico, we pick them up at the airport, bring them back to the mission home, and start to do some preliminary training before we sent them out with their real trainers. And the advice I always gave these new, excited, wet behind the ears, fresh off the airplane missionaries had to do with the horizontal versus the vertical. I always told them, you're going to be confused. I was. Puerto Ricans speak Spanish so much faster than almost any other Spanish speaker in the world. So good luck with that. People have questions that you've never thought about. You're swimming in the deep end. Now, you've got an amazing trainer. All of them are going to bend over backwards to make sure that you can get up to speed quickly. But I can warn you about something. You will be tempted anytime somebody asks you something. They say something you can understand. Anytime you're put on the spot, you will do this almost instinctively. You'll immediately look at your companion with this quizzical look of, help me. In fact, it'll happen so often. It'll become reflexive. You'll do this so often that I would encourage you to make sure you alternate which side of your trainer you sit on in discussions so occasionally you get to do this. Kind of balance out the neck muscles, okay? Now, you're free to do that. In fact, you should do that. That's why you have such wonderful trainers. However, I would encourage all of you, before you're about to do this, please do this. Look up for help. Pray for understanding. Do the very best you can. Look up for help. And I can promise that the more often you do this, 
the less often you'll have to do this. Outgrowing your trainer will be a good thing. And Alma is learning that. He's looking up now after having first looked out. Verse 14, this prayer is described beautifully. After he had poured out his whole soul to God, the voice of the Lord came to him. I wonder if what keeps us from receiving the voice of the Lord is there's no room for it. He can't squeeze his will or word into us because our will is filling every vacant space. You see what Alma's doing? He first pours out his whole soul to God. That leaves him with plenty of room for God to pour truth into that space. Vacate your will to leave room for the Lord's. And what the Lord says to Alma is magnificent. It's a long answer to what is recorded here as a fairly short prayer. It was much longer, I'm sure, than what verse 14 gives it credit for. It takes a while to pour out a whole soul, after all. But from verse 15 through verse 32, here's the Lord's answer. And it begins with this kind of swinging back and forth between blessings for Alma and blessings for his people. What Alma was coming to the Lord for was regarding his people. But I love that the Lord takes the opportunity to continually reassure him individually as well. Yes, God wants to bless the people through the prophet, but he also wants to bless the prophet himself. Verse 15, blessed art thou, Alma. Let's start with you. And blessed are they who were baptized in the waters of Mormon. There's the first swing. Thou art blessed because of thy exceeding faith in the words alone of my servant Abinadi. There wasn't even a second discussion there. Conversion on the first discussion. That's amazing. You heard his word. You knew. You fled. You wrote it down. You, you pondered these things. No wonder his teachings seemed to focus so singularly on faith and repentance. He didn't get much more than that. But it was enough for him to be blessed by God. Verse 16 then, blessed are they. Pendulum swings to the other side. Because of their exceeding faith in the words alone which thou hast spoken unto them. Your blessedness is a result of your faith in my word, and their blessedness is a result of their faith in the word as well. Verse 17, blessed art thou, because thou hast established a church among this people. You weren't content to leave these people unnurtured and unnumbered, unrecorded or unremembered, alone with their vertical dimension. You established a church, and they shall be established. They shall be my people. The goals of your church, in other words, will be realized. Yea, blessed is this people who are willing to bear my name. You're seeing those that choose not to, but blessed are those who who do. In my name shall they be called. They're mine, because I'm theirs. A beautiful exchange of possessive pronouns, if we're willing. Because thou hast inquired of me concerning the transgressor, thou art blessed. You were so troubled that you didn't want to do anything wrong in my sight. Thank you for that, Alma. Transgressors require the atonement. And that's my territory. I don't delegate grace very far. This is something I want to handle personally. So thank you for coming to me to ask about how to help transgressors return. I'm in my third bishopric right now. It's either third time's the charm or three strikes and I'm out. I hope I figure it out. But in those years, kind of spread out over the last 21 of serving in bishoprics, I've been a part of lots and lots of disciplinary councils. I no longer remember dates and details. Names and faces have all kind of merged into just a fuzzy memory of people coming in to try to work out their lives with God. But what I do remember best, crystal clear, is how close to the vest the Lord keeps his condescending grace. This is his territory, and he doesn't delegate it far. Yes, he involves mere mortals, perhaps in large part because of what we learn in the process, but those have been some of the most spiritual experiences of my entire life of church service. They have definitely been some of the most prayerful. I was called, my first bishopric, I was called one day, It was a Saturday, and after meeting with the stake president, I got a call from the bishop that had submitted my name, and he said, I'm so grateful that you're willing to serve with me. I know they gave you a copy of the church handbook of instructions. 
you'll eventually have time to read it all. But I need you tonight to read the chapter on church discipline because tomorrow we're having a church disciplinary council. Welcome to the bishopric. My first full day on the job, and it was going to include a church disciplinary council. I fasted that day. I prayed intensely in my study, in my preparation, and during the disciplinary council itself. We prayed together beforehand. We prayed with the individual when they came in. When the individual left, we prayed again collectively, and then we separated ourselves into different parts of the chapel so we could be alone with God and pour out our whole souls to Him until the voice of the Lord came into our souls to let us know what needed to take place. We came back together. We discussed. We prayed more. Again, I have learned, if nothing else, from all of those experiences that repentance and redemption, that transgression and forgiveness is the Lord's territory. And he takes that all in hand and makes sure that his will is done as much as we are able to empty ourselves and allow ourselves to receive it. Alma does it beautifully. Verse 20, a more personal gift to him. Thou art my servant, and I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. Now that in and of itself would, would have been a life changer for Alma. Basically having one's calling and election made sure. But I suppose the Lord could have reassured him with that at any time. It's interesting he did it here during this prayer about how should I judge those in transgression? I think this is coming as a beautiful reassurance that you, Alma, who knows the dark side of life, who knows transgression as a transgressor, not just as a judge, but as a defendant. It caused you sore repentance. You remember that? Of course you did. But I need you to be reassured that that is all behind you. That not only have you been forgiven, you've been saved. I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. You see, remember the woman taken in adultery? that the Jewish leaders were trying to trap Jesus and try to get him to be either overly merciful or overly just. And Jesus splits the middle, does it perfectly as he always did, and says, let him that is without sin among you be first to cast the stone. In other words, if you're going to judge, that's fine. But judge based on your own experience of sinfulness. Judge their sins with your own sins in mind. Now, I hope that we don't take that to mean, oh, well, I should just bend over backwards to be overly merciful because I really hope God will be overly merciful to me. No, I think there it's when the Lord says at the beginning of 20, thou art my servant and serving me is going to require this balance of justice and mercy as much as he does. Along the lines of judging with yourself in mind is not just judge them based on your own sinfulness. No, judge them based on your own forgiveness. Go into this knowing that people can change because you did. Go into this passing judgment that a sentence of no punishment doesn't just have to follow a verdict of not guilty. It can follow a verdict of guilty. You were, but you're not that person anymore. You're saved. You have eternal life. I promise you that. And so every person you look across the table at, understand that the day can come that they can receive the same divine reassurance. There's a lot in that chapter on church discipline. Some beautiful changes in the recent revision of that chapter, by the way. They no longer are called disciplinary councils, for one. But one of its great unchanging truths in that chapter is that first and foremost, the goal of all church discipline is to save the soul of the sinner, to prepare them to someday receive this word from the Lord, whom they've offended now. I covenant with thee that thou shalt have eternal life. May every judge in Israel have that in mind as they're starting to work with a repentant sinner. Not just a commiserating, I've sinned too, but more of a, a hopeful and an uplifting, I've been forgiven too.
and you can be as well. Again, sandwiching that promise of eternal life on both ends, beginning, thou art my servant, ending, thou shalt serve me. Do it my way. Balance justice and mercy. Realize that I am delegating the tiniest bit of authority, but this is my territory. So be my servant here and go forth in my name. What particular name? There's a lot to choose from. Do we go forth as lion or do we go forth as lamb? Do we go forth as judge or do we go forth as advocate? Again, back to the Temple Recommend interview, our faith in Christ is in his roles as Savior and Redeemer. So I hope when we are passing judgment, we go forth in those names, those titles, and gather together my sheep. I think that is the Lord clarifying what role he is claiming and what role he's therefore giving to his servants. I'm the good shepherd. So please gather together my sheep. If I'm sending you out in search of the one, leaving the ninety and nine with other good under-shepherds, so that you can search for them in the mountains, as it's described in one of the accounts of that parable, to search for them until you have found them. You never give up on a lost sheep. To pick them up and put them on your shoulders to carry them home and to do so rejoicing, not lecturing them for having wandered in the first place. That's church discipline. That is shepherding. That is serving the Savior, who is the best of the good shepherds. In verse 21, if they'll hear my voice, they'll be my sheep. Receive them into the church. I receive them too. The church's standards for membership shouldn't be lower than the Lord's, but they sure shouldn't be higher, right? Please receive them. I will. Yes, be just, because I'm just too, but man, you better be merciful, because that's my middle name. After all, this is what being a Christian taking my name upon you, is all about. That's what being part of the Christian church entails. Verse 22, this is my church. That's all it is. Repentant sinners, that's all I got. Including you, Alma, who's the high priest of the whole thing. That's all I have to work with. This is my church. Wandering sheep who happen to hear my voice and choose intermittently at best to respond to it. That's what my church consists of. Whosoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance. Did you catch the order there? We usually talk in the or article of faith, fourth article, the order, first principles and ordinances, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. So we're, we repent to get into baptism, right? We repent to prepare for baptism. But here we are baptized unto repentance. It seems to go both directions. But I love that, that we are baptized not as the, the sum total. Remember 2 Nephi 31? Baptism is the beginning, not the end. You've started on the path. It's the gate. Now you've got a lot of walking to do. And walking involves stumbling, missteps on occasion. And so you haven't gotten this far without faith and repentance. So that's what's going to be, that paves the way from here on out. So you are baptized not to escape repentance as if you no longer need it. You're baptized unto repentance, you're baptized, you're making a covenant that you'll keep repenting. That's what baptism was for. In fact, we sometimes talk about, well, we always talk about baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And then we go around and baptize eight-year-olds who were sinless, right? They were unaccountable. And so I've often wondered when an eight-year-old gets baptized, are they still baptized for the remission of sins if technically they didn't have any on their permanent record? Well, yes. An eight-year-old is baptized for the remission of sins, but not for sins past, since none of those counted against them. They're being baptized for the remission of sins future. They're making a covenant with Christ saying, I know you've covered everything to this point automatically. Thank you for that. That was pre-season. I threw lots of interceptions, but hopefully I have a little bit better ball control now. Now it's going to start to count. And I am covenanting with you that I will keep repenting every time. Will you please keep forgiving me? It's going to count from this moment forward. 
please be with me. I, I promise I will do my best to be with you. Every sin, and there have been innumerable sins that I have committed since my eight-year-old baptism, has been forgiven, not because it was washed away in water, but is forgiven through the atonement of Christ. Because way back then, he promised he would do that for me. Because I promised I would seek that forgiveness each and every time. That's what we promised to do. That's what being baptized unto repentance entails. That's what the church is. A bunch of sinners that keep on trying. Isn't that the definition of a saint? That's what the church is. A hospital for the spiritually wounded, not a country club for the already saved. That's all the church could ever be in this life. Verse 22 ends again. Whomsoever ye receive shall believe in my name, this name of merciful Savior, and him will I freely forgive. What a beautiful adverb. He doesn't say, and him will I begrudgingly forgive. It's him I will freely forgive. It's what I came for. It's why I set up my church. I know what I'm working with. And it's my work and my glory to do just this. After all, I know who I am. Verse 23. It is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. It wasn't forced upon me by the Father. I took it. That's the word that Alma the Younger will use later in Alma 7 over and over. He taketh upon him our sins. He taketh upon him our infirmities, our weakness. He's asking for this. It's not forced upon him. It is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. It is I that hath created them. It is I that granteth unto the him that believeth unto the end a place at my right hand. Do you catch how personal he is in those verses? It's me. It's me. It's me. I get it. I created you. I know who you are. I created the earth and all the dust from which you've developed. I know your fallen nature. I took it upon myself. I know your needs. To your weakness, I am no stranger. I created you. Not only did I create you, I took upon myself the sins of the world. I redeemed you so that then I could judge you mercifully and grant unto you at the end a place at my right hand. You remember the story of Boyd K. Packer, amazing artist and sculptor who had this intricate bird carving in the back of his car and he was driving around with some other general authority who broke the bird carving. And he was so apologetic, just devastated. That's how I would be. Just like, <gasps> I have no artistic talent whatsoever. I can do nothing to right my wrong. I'm devastated. I'm so sorry. And over and over, President Packer trying to reassure this junior companion of his until he finally got through to him with this statement. I made it. I can fix it. Can you hear the Lord saying that in verse 23? It is I that created them. So it is I that redeems them. And again, it's I that will judge them at the end. I'm their start to finish. What a blessing that our judge is both our redeemer and our creator. It's like, yep, I know what you started with. I know what you were up against. I, I know every mitigating circumstance. I get it. I know that you're both perpetrator and victim. I know you're both agent and object. I know you've acted and been acted upon, and I will take all of that into consideration in my judgment. Verse 24, For behold, in my name, he's just listed some of those titles or hinted at them, are they called? And if they know me, they shall come forth and shall have a place eternally at my right hand. If you know me, when I bid you come, you'll come. When I say you're forgiven, believe me. When I ask you to come in, even when you feel unworthy, trust me and enter. That's the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just. 25 and 26, yes, there is a resurrection of the unjust. Yes, there are those who don't listen, who don't know the name that I'm calling them by. 
that would not be redeemed, as he says at the end of verse 26. Those are the ones that, verse 27, I never knew because they wouldn't let me come close enough to get to know them. They wouldn't trust that I knew them all along because I created them and redeemed them. I descended below all things. I know what they're made of. I know what they've been through. I'll confess unto them that I never knew them because they'll finally confess to themselves that they never let me or never acknowledged how well I knew them all along. Well enough to trust him as a merciful judge, to come unto him to be saved. And sadly, verse 28, if they won't hear my voice, then they probably won't hear yours. If they won't come into my kingdom, then they probably won't come into my church. And they can't be received in either spot. But let's hold out hope for them, for everyone. Verse 29, go. You've got work to do, judge in Israel. Go, high priest. Whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge, according to the sins which he has committed. If he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, then forgive him. I'll be doing the same. Notice what was said about confession there, to confess before me and thee. We often approach confession a little like Goldilocks, either too hard or too soft, too hot or too cold. We sometimes picture what we see sometimes portrayed in Hollywood about some confessional where you pop in and speak through the lattice and this is just kind of a going through the motions as it's sometimes portrayed. It's not meant to be that in other faiths either. But on the other hand, we sometimes take confession so, I don't know, so hot that it's the undoable thing. It's the unimaginable difficulty instead of knowing that that's what the church is people that are baptized unto repentance, that that's what judges in Israel are, that people that seek to help people find forgiveness through the lens of the forgiveness they've found themselves. As I've pondered confession, I think it was Elder Maxwell that called it the scouring of the soul. It reminds me of the great verse in section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he says, this is how you can tell if someone's repented of their sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Now, as I ponder the, the two of those coming together in a person, this is a, a gross overgeneralization, but maybe it'll be helpful in, in wrapping our brains around this point. It seems that some people are good at confessing and bad at forsaking, and other people are good at forsaking but bad at confessing. It almost feels like because you're good at this one, you're going to tend to be not so good at the other and vice versa. A lot of it has to do with how you perceive yourself. If you look at yourself perhaps as less than what you really are, then confessing comes a little easier. I don't think I'm anything. And so going to talk to the bishop and just this is who I am and and I didn't your expectation of me is, is probably not going to go down much because you probably didn't think very highly of me to begin with. But at the same time, what makes it easy for them, easier to confess, might make it harder for them to forsake. Because this is just who I am. This is the real me. It's easy to say that to a, a, a bishop or a stake president, but it's really hard to change it. On the other hand, there are those that perhaps think a little too highly of themselves that I'm the good person. I'm not a sinner. I mean, yeah, lowercase s, sinner. You know, I might have made some mistakes here and there. But I'm the type that will forsake them as intensely as possible. And as a result of that, it's sometimes really hard for that person to confess them. That sin is not who I am. I'm going to stop doing it. I've got to get rid of that. Get as far away from that person as I possibly can. And so to actually go to someone else I guess, I mean, confessing before the Lord, sure, he already knew about the sin, but confessing horizontally as well as vertically, I don't want them to think that's who I am. I don't want them to, to lower their estimation of me. I'm a forsaker. I, I can't become a confessor versus I'm a confessor. I don't know if I'll ever be able to be a forsaker. We're all a little bit of both. We're all, we all think a little higher or a little lower at times of our lives. 
we need to get better at doing both, at humbling ourselves and also strengthening ourselves all at the same time to truly become the person that God wants us to become, both humble and confident, both just and merciful, both a confessor and a forsaker of sin. And if we become that kind of person, then we become God's kind of person. And notice the promise made to them in verse 30. As often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. As often. There is no limit to the mercy in that phrase. As often as my people. That's what he's after. Are you still my people? Will you claim me so I can claim you? Will you know me so you'll admit that I know you? Because if you are, then as often as you need me to come to the rescue. That's what we covenanted to do. You were baptized unto repentance. You covenanted to remain in that state of repentance. And I covenanted to remain in that state of grace and forgiveness and compassion and mercy. I had a pair of seminary students years ago. Oh, these two friends were hilarious. Uh, and one seemed to be more of the instigator that was always kind of needling or making fun of, but just having a blast with this friend. And he took it so beautifully and loved it himself. But I remember this one day, these guys were almost inseparable. And they came into my office and the one that kept saying things and then the other kind of the, the goofball uh, guy was hilarious. He kept, not, he kept counting. And this friend would say something and he'd go, 196, 197. And he'd go on, the guy would roll his eyes and he'd say something else, 198. 199. They always seem to come in pairs. I, I, that, that kind of struck me. Well, eventually, having heard this enough times, I finally just said, whoa, whoa, whoa. why do you keep counting? And with his kind of goofy grin, he'd just say, oh, I'm just, I'm forgiving him. I'm like, huh? Well, he'll do something. And, you know, it's so easy for me to take it the wrong way, knowing what, you know, what, what he's trying to say. And so, and so I, but I forgive him. I'm, I'm that good. I'm like, why are you doing it in pairs? He says, well, I have a feeling that once I've forgiven him, because he's, he's angry at me for even acknowledging that he'd sinned against me, but I want to forgive him for that too. So I, I always kind of just do the two for one. It's like, I forgive you. Oh, and I forgive you for getting mad at me that you, knowing that you needed forgiveness. Again, these guys were hilarious. And I still said, but I said, okay, great, but why the count? And he said, because as soon as I hit 490, I'm done. Now, he knew that I would know what he was talking about, right? As you all do. Seven times 70. That's the limit of our grace. And evidently for him, he was about approaching halfway. It's like, as soon as I hit 490, I'm done forgiving this guy. Now, this was all done in fun. And so in fun, I just responded, ah, oh, that's cool. What number do you think you're on with God? And it just kind of this. I then said, do you think the Lord set up that math equation as some kind of limit to our love? Like you've, you've maxed out my mercy? Is that what it is? Or was this, again, who knows what, how much of a mathematician the apostles were? How many beads on the abacus they needed to move over? I have no idea. Or was this simply a, you're not meant to number them? You're meant to lose count? Make forgiveness your attitude not your arithmetic. Become a forgiving person. You're not bean counting your blessedness. This is, it's okay. I get it. I know who you are. I know who I am. I'm just forgiving. As often as my people repent, I'll forgive them. It's who I am. I lost track long, long ago of whatever number I was supposed to be counting on with you good thing too. I think I hit 490 decades ago. Now there's one more thing that needs to be said about this verse before moving on. Because this is a fine line, as any Goldilocks moment will tell you. Too hot or too cold, either way you fall off the straight and narrow. Sometimes we are so overly just with ourselves that we can't seem to bring ourselves to accept that reality that as often as we repent, God will forgive us. But sometimes we're too merciful with ourselves to the point of enabling behavior that we know is wrong and not feeling much godly sorrow over it at all. There's actually a verse in section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants 
that is the other bumper bowling, so to speak. If you're too just, then spend time in Mosiah 26, verse 30. As often as you repent, I'll forgive you. If you're too merciful, then spend more time in section 82, verse 7, where he says, Go your ways and sin no more, but unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. Can you sense both sides of this then? Okay, bumper bowling on either extreme, trying to keep us into the lane. What's interesting about it, though, is it's, it does make it seem almost like this all or nothing. I have all my sins or I have none of my sins. The Mosiah verse is, as often as I repent, sins are gone. The Doctrine and Covenants 82 verse, but if you sin, it all comes back. Those former sins return. It almost feels like you're playing musical chairs. And whenever the music stops, if I'm on a chair, I'm fine. I've repented. The Lord remembers my sins no more. If I'm not in a chair, then I'm out. I've sinned and all my former sins return. Is it, is it that kind of an all or nothing in a chair, out of the chair? Because if it is, I'm scared to death when the music stops. The challenge is we don't have much control or any control really about when the music stops. What if you die on a bad day? You can picture two people living the very same kinds of lives in a car together, gets in an accident, one lives and one doesn't. The accident happened on a bad day for both of them, but one of them had a chance to repent afterwards and turn his life around. The other didn't. Is one exalted and the other condemned? What would this one have done if he had survived the accident and had time and opportunity to repent? I picture that sometimes in terms of my marriage. And how would my marriage be defined if I died on a bad day? My wife and I typically get along beautifully. But occasionally when there is some kind of friction, can you imagine I head off to work on some day where the last thing I said to my wife was something negative? Or she got the last word in edgewise, the last dig as I got in the car and drove off. Well, what if I got in an accident on the way to work and died? Does that last experience define my marriage? just because I died on a bad day? Because what would have happened if I'd lived? I would have come home from work and I would have apologized to her and she to me. We would have made up for the mistakes that we made and we would have moved forward in faith and hope and charity for one another because that's what our marriage is made of. That's the way we've always handled tension or friction in the past. It's not about dying on a good or bad day. It's about what is your marriage made of? What is your life made of? It's less a matter of in this moment, have I had all my sins return or all my sins forgiven? In fact, the phrase that matters most in Mosiah 26:30 is not forgive or even repent. It's my people. Are you my people? Because my people do sin, but my people repent. They were baptized unto repentance. My people don't let friction in their marriage last long. They apologize. They make up. They forgive. If repentance is how we live our lives, the all or nothing nature that these two verses suggest has to do with our relationship with the Lord. Picture a bank account, for example. We talked about the ledgers when we were back with King Benjamin. But picture your bank account where you're really not sure about how much you're spending, how much you're saving, how much you're earning. And so you, every time you look at your balance, you're not sure if you're going to be in the black or in the red. And imagine if you're audited, if you die on a bad day, you're in the red and you're in debt. Imagine instead a marriage to a partner who's never in the red, where the Lord's assets always more than make up for your liabilities. His credits outweigh your debits infinitely. In that situation, I'd never wonder if I was in the hole when I checked our joint bank account, as long as it's a joint account. If it wasn't, then I'm on my own and my debits outweigh the credits every time. The question then is not what's in my account. It's do I have a joint account with Christ or not. It's not my money. It's my marriage that matters. And as long as I'm connected to him, 
I'm not running up the bank account. I'm not running up the bills just saying, ah, he's rich, he'll cover it. Because that's not much of a marriage. But if my marriage is such that we are truly one, then of course, as often as I repent, he'll forgive me. But if my marriage is broken, if I have abandoned him, then of course when I sin, my former sins return because I have one account and it's all on me. If we can see our salvation as relational instead of transactional, then it's marriage and not math that I need to be worried about. That's where our focus can and should be. He adds to that in verse 31 that we need to forgive one another because he that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. President Kimball talked about that, that if we don't forgive others, we have just burned the bridge over which we must cross if we hope to return to God. So verse 32, go. Again, this reminder, if they won't repent, then they can't be numbered among my people. Again, that's the, the difference we saw back in verse 30. Are they my people or not? It's not that my people don't sin. It's that my people don't stay in their sins. They choose to change every chance that they get. Those that choose not to change have chosen not to be my people. Those are the ones that I can't claim because they, they don't claim me. And that's the way things need to be in the church, he says, from this time forward. When Alma hears this, verse 33, he writes it all down, treasuring the revelation that he's been granted. Maybe this is the first chapter on church discipline that was ever written. But he was going to judge the people of the church according to those things that God had just told him. Verse 34, he went and judged them according to the word of the Lord. And that's the standard that we judge people by, both in its mercy and in its justice. Not, I like this person, so I'll be lenient. I'm not so sure about this one, so I'll be a little more hard. I judge according to the word of God. And that's how Alma does it from that time forward. Verse 37, thus he regulates all the affairs of the church. And being thus regulated, end of 37, they received many and baptized many. It's interesting that the growth of the church increased by following these standards of righteousness. All the mercy that people deserve, but also all the justice that the commandments of God merited. President Hinckley himself said this on his interview with 60 Minutes years and years ago. That Why is the church growing so fast, he was asked. And he said, because we have high standards. We ask for sacrifice. We make demands of our members. The Lord does. And that's not just true of our church. Almost ironically, it's the churches that allow almost anything that don't seem to grow. And yet the ones that hold their members to a high standard, but then help them reach it, those are the ones that tend to grow. That was the case with Alma. Chapter 26 then ends with verse 38 and 39. All these things did Alma and his fellow laborers do who were over the church, walking in all diligence, teaching the word of God in all things, and then this part, suffering all manner of afflictions, being persecuted by all those who did not belong to the church of God. I wonder if that was a hard realization for Alma and his people, or Limhi and his people. We were persecuted by the Lamanites back in the land of Nephi, or we were persecuted by the people of Amulon in the land of Helam. We finally made it back to Zarahemla. I thought of all the places that we wouldn't be persecuted, it would be here. I wonder sometimes when people join the church, they've only met the missionaries, the closest thing to Christ that you could probably imagine. And they get this picture of what the church must be like. And they join and come. And I sometimes worry about what they face once they've entered. Or people who join the church around the world and decide, I want to come to Zion. I want to gather and move to Utah. And they come here. Are they as accepted as they ought to be? They come with such great expectations of the Zion they assume that exists here. Do they still suffer afflictions? Are they persecuted by those, whether outside the church or in other ways, inside the church? I hope Zarahemla is a more welcoming place for anyone who is hoping for the best when they come here. Verse 39 then ends, They admonished their brethren, and were also admonished themselves, everyone by the word of God. And then this interesting phrase, according to his sins or 
to the sins which he had committed. Praying without ceasing and giving thanks in all things. That phrase, it sounds really redundant. They're admonished for their sins. Well, I mean, I mean the sins that they had committed. Is, is there any difference between my sins and the sins that I've committed? I guess in some ways, no. But the possessive pronoun speaks volumes. I love the fact that at the end of a discussion of forgiveness, of mercy, a distinction is drawn between his sins. Oh, actually, can I get rid of that possessive pronoun? They don't belong to him anymore. He's no longer defined by them. They did exist. They occurred. If we're going to refer to them at all, can we simply impersonally refer to them as the sins which he had committed? Because they don't belong to him anymore. He's handed them over to Christ. Remember that phrase back in 2 Nephi 9? The unrepentant will eventually say, my transgressions are mine. Again, that sounds redundant. Of course they're yours if they're yours. But they didn't have to be. We can instead say, my transgressions are no longer mine. I've given them to Jesus. And he's taken them from me in his mercy. Those are no longer my sins. Those are just the sins that I happened to commit. An earlier, lesser version of me that no longer exists. By the way, I think it's so fitting that Mosiah chapter 26 precedes Mosiah 27. I know that's how the numbers work. But it's Alma the elder being reassured about his own forgiveness. Thou shalt have eternal life. I covenant with you about that. About the forgiveness of his people. As often as they repent, I'll forgive them and you should too. That's 26 because what comes in 27? Alma the younger. And all of his sinfulness that must have weighed incredibly heavy on the heart of a father and high priest that wears two hats regarding this wayward young man. To look at his son in all his prodigality through the lens of what he just experienced in Mosiah 26 is key. It would have given Alma the elder hope moving forward. And I hope it's done the same for us. As we move forward into Mosiah chapter 27 and start wrestling with Alma the Younger's sins, please keep in mind what we've learned in chapter 26. It would have been in Alma the Elder's mind. It's what gave him the faith that things could change for his son. And it can give us faith for our changes and others' changes as well.